The following message is brought to you by Champions Church. For more information, please visit champschurch.com. there and we have some fellowship time and they kind of let me kind of vent and rant and, and, and run my mouth a little bit. And then I don't come in here and do that to you, right? So like today's topic, today's topic was, was grandparents. You know, I mean, something happens between being a parent and being a grandparent where you're, you're, you just absolutely lose all sense of right and wrong and, and, and it's just bizarre. So let me give you an example of that because we're not all grandparents in the room. We don't, we don't all know what that is, but like here's an example. I mean, the stuff that that I could have never gotten away with when I was a kid now is, is 100% okay, right, for grandchildren. But then there's stuff like this. This was the rant that they protected you from, and I know it's a little ironic that you're getting it anyway, right? <laughs> this was a long time ago, so this, this isn't a recent thing, but one of the examples that was given in the conversation was, you know, I remember uh, dropping off or having my, my sons be with, with uh, uh, their grandfather. We call him Opa, so they were dropped off with Opa. Now, we're not people that drop off our kids. We're just not. Like, I think in our entire, you know, existence as a family, we've used a babysitter five times, maybe. Five five babysitter events in 11 years. And I think three of those ended with us getting a call from the babysitter saying that our children had locked them in a room somehow and they couldn't get out. I'm serious. That's happened multiple times. So we'd have to, you know, cut whatever event short and go and, and set the babysitter free. So... Uh, so we're just kind of not wired that way, but so when, when we did, you know, left them with Opa, and, and this was the instruction, right? Pretty simple. Hey, no sugar, please. No sugar. Okay, no problem. So we go, we come back, and I find both of them walking around with sacks of marshmallows, just stuffing them in their face, right? Well, so the, the whole point was, was like, you know, what happens? What, what has to, to disengage for something like that to take place. And the reality is people change, perspectives change. I mean, we all know that a, a marshmallow is nothing more than just, you know, sugar. That's what it is. I mean, that's all it is, actually. Probably that and maybe some kind of, you know, chemistry lesson, the word you can't pronounce that binds it together and makes it really unnatural and unhealthy for you. But the reality is there's, there's things that happen that change in our lives. You know, time alters things and changes things and our perspectives change. I want to take that into consideration as we get into the Word this morning, because one of the things that I want to talk about this morning, and, and I want to move quickly through it because I think we can navigate the Word quickly and it'd be very effective, but one of the things that we have throughout our lives is conflict, and time and perspective alter how we deal with conflict, and sometimes that uh, way of dealing with conflict is, is effective and productive, and then other times it's, it's not. It can make things worse. So what I want to do is I want to take a look in the scripture and I want to identify how Jesus handles conflict. So as we get into the word, there's a few things that we're going to find. Uh, one of the things we're going to find is just that. We're going to open up how does Jesus handle conflict. That's one of the things we're going to find. A second thing we're going to find is what is needed to produce what's right. Because, I mean, any time in any kind of conflict, you ultimately want the result to be right. And most of the time that I've ever been in a conflict, it's been because I believe myself to be right. You know, I've never just been in a conflict thinking, well, I know I'm wrong about this, but I'm sticking to it anyway. I mean, some people are wired that way. I, I would hope that we might be more mature than that. And then a third thing that we're going to find is what never stops increasing 
as long as Jesus is in charge. There's something that's always growing. It never stops increasing. So I want to find out how Jesus perceives and handles conflict. And I want to find that in the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. Now, this topic uh, came up mildly, just slightly, uh, on Wednesday, when we were together on Wednesday, and, and an example was pulled from it, and it's really what has kind of triggered the thinking for, for what I want us to, to examine today. In Mark chapter 4, I want to begin in verse 35. You see a, a situation. Now, this situation is one that isn't a, a conflict like we would have in our day-to-day interactions necessarily, but yet it still shows a, a situation where conflict exists and Jesus handles it. How he handles it is a really great example for us. Let me read the scripture and then we'll kind of break down why we're looking at it and where we're going with it. That opens up in verse 35. On that day when evening came, Jesus said, let's go over to the other side. Now, he'd been ministering to a group of people. They wanted to cross a body of water in order to continue ministering to other people who were in need. Now, verse 36. Leaving the crowd, they took Jesus with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with them, and they went across the water. A fierce gale of wind lifted up. The waves were breaking over the boat, so much so that the boat was filling up. Jesus himself was on the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him, and they, they, they cried out, Teacher, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus got up, he rebuked the wind, and said, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. And Jesus said to them, Why are you afraid? Uh, do you still have no faith? And then those who were in the boat with him became very much afraid and said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So I want to look at a couple of things there, and I want to uh, talk about this from the perspective of conflict and how it exists in our lives. The first thing that I want to do is I want to adjust a little bit of the vocabulary. Uh, In verse 39, we read that Jesus got up and he rebuked the wind, said, hush, be still, and it became perfectly calm. I want to give you a couple of literal translations. Now, some of you, depending on what translation you have there in your Bible, it may read like this anyway. But rather than the word rebuked, the word charged can be a literal translation. Now, we don't use the word charge a whole lot in our our day-to-day vocabulary, uh, so I want to look at a definition of that word. Uh, It also says this, that where it says that when he rebuked or he charged the storm, it became perfectly calm. That can be literally translated, a great calm occurred. So you're dealing with the situation where there's a storm. And when this storm is charged by Jesus, then a great calm occurs. I want to take a look at that for the purpose of, of identifying what this is. I mean, I can take on the perspective that this is just simply an extraordinary event that's meant to identify Jesus as the Son of God, and it's very exclusive to him, or I can identify this as an event that Jesus is walking in in his function, in his call, as a child of God, like me, like you, and he's offering this as an example in how to handle situations that are disagreeable. So I want us to, to, to get our vocabulary straight here, and let's consider what a storm is. 
So he's dealing with the storm. The storm is the opposition to the situation or the circumstance being desirable. I mean, everything's fine, everything's desirable until the storm takes place. I mean, in my life, there's a lot of things that are moving along, they're bumping along just fine, everything is in order, and then interruptions to that order take place. They may not be weather phenomenon, but yet they would be considered storms in the sense that they're an interruption to things going smoothly, right? So you have plenty of those yourself, I'm sure. I remember being young, and I loved agriculture. I pursued farming. Still to this day, love farming, even though I don't have a lot of opportunity to participate in it. But I remember sitting and performing tasks like plowing, and you would sit on a tractor, you would move just methodically through the field, and it gave you time to observe. You had plenty of time to observe. You could just watch the skyline and the horizon, now, we were in this, uh, uh, I call it beautiful country. Some people think that it's like living on the moon, you know, but it was in the Texas panhandle where it's, it's prairie. Very flat, you know, not a lot of trees. But if you grow up in that area, there's a chance that you can find the beauty in that. And I found the, the, the prairie to be a very beautiful place. One of the elements that made it beautiful was, was that flat landscape and that you could see the, the horizon and there was a tremendous amount of distance that, that you could, could witness and see. One of the things that was enjoyable was watching storms roll in. Uh, where I was at, it was a, a small community. Uh, out, uh, the, the community was Dalhart, Texas. The farm was outside of Dalhart. You could sit on the tractor and you could witness a, a wonderful uh, manifestation of, of God's beautiful and intentional creation as it concerned our weather patterns. Because just to the, uh, the northwest of Dalhart, you had the beginning of the Rocky Mountains. And the Rocky Mountains would produce a, a large amount of, of cold, frigid air. And then you, you would have uh, where we were at, which was considered the, the, the Caprock area. It was, it was a flat uh, area there where, where warm air would come up from the Gulf of Mexico and settle. So you would have these, these two air masses, that warm air coming up from the Gulf of Mexico, that cold air coming down from the Rockies, and those two air masses would collide right over Dalhart. <laughs> and it was interesting to watch. Now, if you don't know or you don't understand how weather works, that's a recipe for a storm. Cold air plus warm air equals thunder and lightning in the storm. Well, really and truly, that could be a, a definition of conflict in a way. I mean, these two things are just different, and when different things collide, the result can be violent. The result can be undesirable. And those two things don't even have to be in disagreement. I don't think the cold air thought it was better than the warm air, or the warm air thought it was better than the cold air. They were just different, and when those two different things came together, they didn't mix. So you and I have conflict in our lives. I mean, we're different. Uh, the, the Bible promises that we're different from the world. That no matter what you do or say as a Christian, as a believer, old things pass away, new things come. You are in this world, but you're not of this world. Meaning we are surrounded by things that are different than we are. Everywhere we go, everything we say, everything we think is going to be different than that which is in the world. And when those two different things meet at any given point, there's opportunity for there to be a disruption. So by definition, storm, the word storm, I wanted to know what is a storm? 
I want to give you this just straight from the dictionary so that we can just see a, a, a very, very simple and brief definition of a storm. Let me give you this first one. I, I think this first one fits, and it really is the only one that we would need. But by definition, storm is, is identified as a disturbance of the atmosphere. A disturbance of the atmosphere. Another definition that's listed with it is a disturbed or agitated state. Now, if we apply this word to, to weather, we think of things, you know, like, like uh, high winds and, and rain and hail and tornadic activities. But I can tell you that the conflict that exists in my life in relationship when two differing things come into one point of contact could be defined as the same. There's a disturbance in the atmosphere. I can tell you when, when my wife and I have an opposing view on a matter, it affects the atmosphere in our home. There's a disturbance in the atmosphere. I mean, most of the time that disturbance is, is handled appropriately and, and it is dealt with uh, quickly and is, is non-eventful, but it has the potential to be destructive. I mean, to disturb or to agitate. Anytime you have things that are different that come into contact at a single point, you are running the risk for some sort of disturbance. Jesus is doing this here. Now, weather is the example, but yet we can take Jesus' response and we can apply it to any situation or circumstance that we deal with. So I hope that you're able to follow with me there. Now I want to look at what he did when he engaged this storm, this point where two opposing things or two different things met at one point, he did something at that point in response to it. The word says he charged the storm. He charged the wind. He charged the sea. It's not really a, a term that we use a lot, so I want to go to the dictionary and refresh this word. I mean, uh, sometimes when words are, are shelved or archived for a while, they can lose their, their uh, definition in our, in our thoughts. So I want to refresh that for us. If you go to the dictionary, you look up the word charge, you'll find a number of different definitions because it can be used a number of different ways. So let me just give them to you in the order that they were recorded here. <clears throat> One, charge. A store or, or accumulation of impelling force. Like a store or an accumulation of impelling force. Two, a definite quantity of power. In this case, electricity. You know, if you go and you stick a fork in a light socket, you will feel a charge, right? Uh, three, now this one's interesting, an ecclesiastical jurisdiction offered to a clergyman, like I'm charged with the care of Champions Church, right? I mean, we, we don't function in that vocabulary often here, but that doesn't mean that's not how we function. In some churches, there would be a grand ceremony, and it would be understood and announced and proclaimed that there would be a charge to care for a congregation in and, and an area or a region. Ecclesiastical jurisdiction. That one's really interesting to me. A fourth one is one that I think we can all relate to. Charge. The price demanded for something. I mean, you know, what will you charge me for this? And then a fifth one here. A charge. The signal for attack or a violent rush forward. I mean, we're familiar with that when you hear the bugle sound and the call to charge and everyone moves forward and advances. 
So as Jesus is charging the storm here, I have to ask myself, which one of these definitions is being applied? I mean, is Jesus, uh, is he calling for the disciples to wage war on the storm, telling them, keep the boat moving forward, we'll overcome this storm, charge? I don't think that's the the definition because the, the results don't line up with that. I mean, the reality is the the storm just subsided as soon as he charged the storm. Uh, It's not a price demanded for something. Nothing was being purchased. It certainly didn't have anything to do with uh, electricity. But there does seem to be an, an element of ecclesiastical jurisdiction in a store or an accumulation of an impelling force. I mean, when I look at this and I look at the results, I don't think that you're dealing with someone who just had good timing. You know, the last gale of wind had blown and the storm was over and Jesus just happened to time it just right where he stood there and said, you know, peace, be still, or hush, be still. And and the timing was perfect and it just so happened the storm ended. And he sure wasn't giving the weather advice. It wasn't kind of like, hey, You know, here's uh, just tips for for better living by Jesus Christ. Why don't you try relaxing a little bit, you know? You don't have to blow so hard wind. You don't have to push so hard waves. You can chill out a little bit. But rather, there's something going on that's being released with these words. As he's charging, I have to ask myself, as Jesus is charging the storm, is he exercising a priestly right that he has the jurisdiction or the authority to exercise to release through his words, peace. And when I see that, I want to step outside of thinking about weather and I want to think about conflict. When two differing things come to a point, do I walk in the calling that I have to function like Jesus? Do I see that disturbance and see my call or my right, the jurisdiction that God would give me through Jesus to bring what's necessary to resolve that disturbance with peace? So I want to read something from the Psalms to you because I think this is important. Many times when we're we're reading in the Scripture in the New Testament, uh, we can get so moved and excited by what we're reading that we, we, don't have, we don't realize that we don't have the same context as those who are experiencing it. You know, these guys that witness Jesus stand and charge the storm with peace. There's a word that I do use a lot, and it's not a common word, but I use the word impart, as in like to put something in. But when he charged the storm with peace, or he imparted peace into the storm, the storm calmed down. Then the scripture said, you know, these guys were more afraid after that. Well, uh, I want to look at that from a specific perspective. There's a number of different perspectives you can look at, at that through, and they're, they're all wonderful. But I want to consider this. I just want to offer this to you. These guys realized because of their upbringing, because of their lifestyle, because of the days and the times that they live in, they realized what they witnessed. That what had happened right before their eyes had been something that they had grown up going to, to, to synagogue and hearing, heard spoken about time and time again. Something that was recorded and prophesied in the Psalms came to pass right before their eyes. I want to give you the, the passage from the Psalms. If you have your Bibles, let's look at Psalm 107. Psalm 107. 
Psalm 107. I want to look at the passages 22 or 23, somewhere in that range, through uh, 30. <clears throat> so imagine for a moment that, that you, you've grown up and you've heard the Psalms read. You've heard uh, these passages read so often. You were very familiar with them. Imagine you just now witnessed Jesus charged the storm. Jesus witnessed that conflict that was going on and then impart peace to it and get the result that, was, was, uh, that did come to pass, that the waves did reside, that the wind did reside. Imagine you just witnessed that and you were very familiar with this. You'd grown up hearing this. Psalm 107, beginning in verse 23. Those that go down to the sea in ships, who do business on the great waters. They've seen the works of the Lord and the wonders in the deep. For he spoke and he rose up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose to the heavens and then down to the depths. The souls of men melted away in their misery. They reeled and they staggered like drunken men, and their wits, they'd come to their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, And he brought them out of their distress. He caused the storm to be still so that the ways of the sea were hushed. If you'd grown up familiar with that psalm, you you had read it and maybe just thought, well, that's kind of an interesting thing. It's poetic at best, but I don't see how that applies to my life. If you'd grown up with that uh, being imparted and read in your your, uh, religious circles, and then all of a sudden you found yourself in a boat with the waves crashing over, and you're crying out, you're at your wit's end, we're going to die. It doesn't get more desperate than that. And then you see the Lord himself stand up and impart peace to the conflict and the waves reside, I think you would realize that you just witnessed what God had wrote about, written about Excuse me, through the psalmist years prior. There would be an awareness and an understanding that an example was just set before you of something that God has spoken of for, for centuries to bring to pass. An awareness that a work was taking place right before your eyes that would forever change how men handled conflict. I've got news for you. In and of myself, I don't handle conflict very well. Without the leading of the Holy Spirit, conflict is going to be a real challenge for me personally. Some of it is because of of how highly I think of myself. Other elements of it are the absence or the lack of patience. I mean, praise God for the impartation of the Holy Spirit and the fruits of the Holy Spirit like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, without those things uh, being supplemented in my life by the presence of the Holy Ghost, conflict is a real challenge for me. And if I find myself not being led by the Holy Spirit, then I manage conflict in a very carnal way. I mean, much like we we are a a dog people at my house. We we have a a number of of dogs, and I I watch how they handle conflict, and I think, wow, that looks really familiar to how I handle conflict. Where when this thing's differing points converge on one point and conflict or a disturbance exists, I feel it's my duty and my need to be as big and mean and angry as I can possibly be to intimidate the other side into backing down. 
It's a really poor way to handle conflict, and I'll give you a couple reasons why. There's always somebody bigger, always somebody meaner, and always somebody more intimidating. You set yourself up for eventual failure when you handle conflict in a carnal or a, a natural way. The supernatural impartation that we now are equipped with by the Holy Ghost allows us to handle conflict like Jesus. When those two points converge and all of a sudden there's a disturbance, we are equipped and empowered with all that we need to impart that which can actually bring solution. The carnal way to handle conflict is to attempt to win. When Jesus is showing us the spiritual way to handle conflict is to do what's right. There's a difference between winning and doing what's right. Sometimes winning requires doing what's wrong. But doing what's right is what we have been called and equipped to do. So I have to ask myself, why is conflict so common in my life? I mean, why, why does it seem like this would be such a normal thing to have to deal with? I mean, at some point you would think that because of the blood of Jesus and the, the forgiveness of, of sins and the cleansing of all corruption and the, the impartation of holiness, that, that all that is satanic and all that is demonic and all that is, is, is carnal in this world would realize that it's just a waste of time to bring disturbance into my life. Why in the world would there be any attempt to disturb me if, if I'm a believer? You have to ask yourself, what is the ultimate goal of that disturbance? <clears throat> so I want to tell you a little bit about how I think so that you'll know how I've come to this conclusion. And I hope that you'll join me in this conclusion because I think it's a really good way of thinking. So I remember hearing a man, he was a minister in Africa, he was actually here in the States, and he was talking about spiritual warfare. And he made a comment, and I thought his comment was sound. I'm not offering it to you as dogma or doctrine, I just thought it was an interesting perspective that I was in agreement with when I heard him say it. He said, when we're functioning in spiritual warfare, it is important to fight a spirit with the opposite spirit. So that's kind of profound, right? I mean, if you're, you're fighting a spirit of depression, let's, let's fight it with joy, right? If you're fighting a spirit of poverty, let's, let's, let's fight it with generosity. You know, I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? So I, I take that train of thought and I look at how did Jesus fight this, this, this point of disturbance? How did Jesus deal with this conflict? You know, he didn't stand and, and look into the wind and say, joy in the name of Jesus, but peace. This call for, for there to be a stillness. I mean, one of the, the words literally could be translated whisper, it, to, to be soft, not to be rough and loud and hard. And I got news for you, in conflict, I tend to be rough and loud and hard. And if I had a nickel for every time I had to apologize for raising my voice, I mean, I wouldn't be rich, but I'd have a few hundred bucks. That's a few hundred more than I wished I had. I want to have the self-control to function and operate in conflict in a righteous way where I'm, I'm less concerned with, with, with winning the argument and more aware of the importance of doing what's right. So when I see how Jesus handles conflict, I see that when this conflict is introduced, when these two things that differ converge on one point and there's a disturbance, 
He imparts peace. That tells me something. That tells me that this disturbance is defeated by, or this disturbance is ministered to by peace. It also tells me that this disturbance thrives on an absence of peace. When I consider the conflict that exists in my life, in my house, in my marriage, raising my kids, when I see that it's just getting louder, getting harsher, getting meaner and nastier, the storm is brewing, I now know based on what I read here, it's because of a peace deficit. And we need a massive impartation of peace or we're never going to sort this out. It's just going to get louder. It's just going to get nastier. It's just going to get meaner. It's just going to get more destructive. We need to impart peace. This is is a challenge to peace. So why is peace under attack? Why would peace be such a big deal in your life? All of these differing Uh, events that come to a point right over your life that bring a disturbance what is the point why would would there be any desire to attack your peace I want to read a few passages of scripture simply to reveal how important peace is the priority of peace now when we speak here when we get into the word together peace has come up a number of times we've we've uh, uh, engaged uh, in topics of peace on a number of occasions and I think for good reason I want to give you a couple of passages here, why peace is such a priority, why it needs to be cherished, why it needs to be protected, why it needs to be imparted into disturbances, and why those disturbances would want to get rid of peace in your life in the first place. One, God is the God of peace. I'll give you a passage of scripture here, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 reads like this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely in your spirit, in your soul, in your body. May they all be preserved complete and without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wonderful, powerful scripture speaking about your entire life. I mean, you're a body, you're a soul, you're a spirit. And this passage of scripture is saying, Now may God sanctify you, set you apart, protect you and keep you in every aspect of your living. That you would be strong, healthy in your body and in your mind. That's where your your soul would, would exist in your mind and in your spirit, your spirit man. Every aspect of who you are, may it be sanctified and protected. And may all of that take place by the God of peace. It's funny to me that that passage of Scripture doesn't say, now may the God of sanctification himself sanctify you entirely. But it would identify the God of peace. That tells me something, that as God is sanctifying my life, the identity through which he is sanctifying my life is peace. He is calming the storms that exist in me. Those things that rage on in my mind, those things that affect my body, the things that did have my spirit in bondage that has been shattered by the power of the blood of Jesus. All the God of peace. Another reason why peace is a priority, it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, through 23 lists those fruits. We quoted them earlier, love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are all things that God has seen to it that we have access to. You know, God is really excellent at bringing a a complete plan to fruition. 
When the Word promises that He will complete a good work in you that He has begun, it's, it's an encouraging thing. It's also something that shouldn't be a surprise. He's an excellent uh, planner, so to speak. Now, I know I'm having to speak in our terms, but the reality is He doesn't leave out details. So if I see that God has made a way to send His Spirit to produce love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in my life, that tells me that I'm lacking those things without His Spirit. To remove the Spirit of God from, from any position of leadership in my life, leading in my thinking, leading in my speaking, leading in my actions, leading in my convictions, is to have a deficit of those fruits. One of those specifically being peace in this case. Another reason why peace is, is so precious to us, God's covenant is identified as a covenant of peace. When you read passages of Scripture, you can see this very clearly, that at one time we were at enmity with God, then God has done this wonderful work on our behalf, and now, according to the Scripture, we have peace with God. Let me give you a Scripture specifically uh, out of Isaiah, Isaiah 54, verse 10. Isaiah 54, verse 10 says, The mountains may be removed and the hills may shake. But God says, my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken. My covenant of peace. The work that God has done in and through my life, through Jesus Christ and the covenant that he has made with me through the shed blood of our King, is a covenant of peace. It's a powerful thing to consider. And I love the language that's used here. You know, though the mountains be removed and the hills shake. I don't know if you've ever been in an earthquake before, but it's a very helpless feeling. I mean, as this is being revealed and spoken, it's being revealed in the most severe way imaginable. If the very ground beneath your feet were to give way and you had nothing to stand on, my covenant of peace would still remain with you. I mean, if the worst of the worst circumstances came to your front door today, God's covenant of peace still remains. Peace is important and a priority. Uh, peace makes up the kingdom of God. I'll give you a passage of scripture here from Romans, Romans chapter 14, verses, or verse, excuse me, 17. It says that the kingdom of God consists of or is made up of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You can see here the, the, the importance of peace, the effects of peace, the, the priority of peace. I mean, to make up the kingdom of God, to identify God's covenant, to identify the sanctifying work of God and be the result of the active and powerful Holy Spirit in my life, peace. When Jesus said peace to that storm, when he spoke for it to be silent, for it to hush, for it to whisper, he's revealing all of the, the power and the urgency and the priority of the peace that God has brought into our lives. And he's not simply revealing it, rather he is imparting it into the conflict. I want to give you a, a passage here. I mentioned before we're going to find what's needed in order to produce what is right. I mentioned before as it concerns handling conflict. I mean, oftentimes with conflict, my goal has been to win. When really and truly our call is to bring what is right into that conflict. It's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to bring what is right 
into any conflict without peace. Let me give you a passage of Scripture here. Uh, James 3.18. James 3.18, it reads like this. The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What an interesting passage of Scripture. The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So if I know as it concerns conflict, my goal is not to win, rather my goal is to bring what's right, I need to understand that the only way I can sow the seeds into that situation that produces what's right, the seed whose fruit is righteousness, is sown in peace by those who make peace. It means I'm never going to get that seed sown to this conflict through aggression and anger and violence. Never. I'm only going to get that seed sown into this conflict with peace. That tells me something about conflict. That my goal is not to get the other side to, to, to be subdued, to, to bring them to a place of surrender. Rather, my goal is to be Christ-like and to introduce peace so that the seeds that are right can be sown. I want to read that again because I find it so amazingly profound. The seed whose fruit is righteousness, that seed that produces what is right, is sown in peace by those who make peace. There's a passage of scripture in Isaiah that bears witness with this. Isaiah 32, 17, it says the work of righteousness will be peace. These are revealing uh, the, the wonders and the power of peace. If someone were to ask me today, based on what we've read, Preston, what is the most powerful weapon that you have at your disposal to handle conflict? I would say it's peace. That may be a mystery to them because they may see peace as the result of handling a conflict. But according to this, when I see Jesus faced with conflict, peace isn't the result of handling it. It is the tool with which you handle the conflict. The result would be the subsiding of the, the, the disturbance in the first place. And if we define that as peace, then we could spend our entire time dealing with conflict waiting for a result that's not coming because we refuse to produce what's necessary, and that's peace in the first place. If I am at odds and there is a dispute and it is rising like a storm, one side barking louder, the other side even louder, and the other side matching and exceeding, and it continues to grow and thunder out of control, we'll never find solution until we are willing to impart peace. Bring it back down. When Jesus calmed that storm, you realize what he did was he seized control of the atmosphere. Seized control of the atmosphere. There have been times I've had disputes. I mean, obviously, uh, the main example in my life that I've used often is, is in marriage uh, and, and family. And uh, I have extended family and things like that. And they're all very passionate and opinionated. Uh, so I'm no stranger to family dynamic issues. There have been times where I have felt the atmosphere growing and thundering out of control and I've literally stopped and said, may we please change rooms? That's going to sound really shallow, right? I mean, it almost sounds like, where'd Jesus go? But, but the truth is, 
I want it to have a physical effect on the atmosphere. Can we please change rooms? I want to leave this room where we've been sitting here thundering out of control, and I want to go and have a very intentional setting where we can engage under a a, a new set of circumstances that we're in control of, because we lost control over here. Now, that doesn't sound very spiritual, but yet it can have a profound effect. Jesus seized the atmosphere. There are things that we can do to practically and literally seize the atmosphere, and then there are these spiritual impartations that we have the ability to release with our words through the impartation of that which we have been blessed with through the Holy Spirit, in this case, peace, that have a very spiritual effect on the atmosphere. So I want to offer this to you. I mean, I want to, how to change any atmosphere. How to change any atmosphere. We're going to look at a couple of passages of Scripture, and then we're, we're done for the day here. I want to give you a passage of Scripture to, to just set the stage for where we end. It'll come from Philippians chapter 2. I want to look at verses 9 through 11. So, you know, you got Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. It can be easy to memorize, you know, Philippians 2, and then you have 911. Anytime you're dealing with conflict, you might think 911, right? Philippians chapter 2, 9 through 11. Uh, this passage of Scripture really doesn't talk about conflict, rather, it talks about Jesus. And I think that's important for us to see here. It reads like this God highly exalted Jesus and bestowed upon him the name which is above every other name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow of those who are in heaven, those who are on earth, those under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What's being revealed here is the very name that we have been called to operate under, that we have been issued to function and and, and operate in, in the name of Jesus. The name that God has blessed us with to function and operate in is a name in which all other names must yield. I mean, we've made songs of it and poetry of it that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, but I want you to consider what the bowing of the knee means. Though something is charging at me, if it is forced to bow its knee to the name of Jesus, it will stop and yield. I want to give you a passage of scripture here as it concerns the name of Jesus. It comes from Isaiah. Now, we pull this passage of scripture out often around the Christmas season because it fills so many of the traditions that we have as it concerns the birth of our king in Bethlehem. And this concept is one that is great, and we ought to celebrate it as we celebrate the Christmas season But I think that if we shelf it for the other 12 months of the year, we miss out on the importance of who Jesus is. This needs to be a 24-7 kind of scripture. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Jesus' name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. I mentioned before there was something that never stops growing when Jesus is king. The backside of this scripture says there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. 
You can't separate peace from Jesus. He's the Prince of Peace. When I see this passage of Scripture, I realize that Jesus and peace are are connected. They're one and the same. If you take Jesus out of my life, I have no peace. What did Jesus bring into my life? Well, according to the Scripture, through Him we have peace with God. Jesus and peace need to be synonymous to us as one and the same. And as we see them as one and the same, we can realize what we have the ability to impart in any conflict in the name of Jesus. Where Jesus may stand in the face of wind and waves and say, hush or peace or whisper, be still, we can stand in the face of any conflict and simply say, Jesus. Not just to say the word as in an issue of one of the words in our vocabulary, but to impart into that situation, Jesus. I'm committed to bring Jesus into this situation. I'm no longer committed to being right and beating you down and putting you in your place, but I'm committed to seeing Jesus in this situation. Even if it means I'm wrong, especially if it means I'm wrong, let's put Jesus in this conflict and let's get the results that are promised when he's in charge as the Prince of Peace. That's how I want to handle conflict. And I think that when we see Jesus calming the storm, it's not just, you know, one in a string of, of oddity events that belong in an episode of the X-Files that just kind of show us that Jesus is not from this world. The reality couldn't be, uh, 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 actually, f- forgive me, that couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus didn't do things to set him apart as different than us. Rather, he functioned and operated as he should as an example to us. He never showed off for the purpose of being exclusive, but rather revealed to us the power and the authority that we walk in for the purpose of being just like him and fulfilling our call to see the expansion of the kingdom of God. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning. I want to pray together and trust and believe God for something great. I think one of the most important elements of of imparting Jesus into conflict is trusting and knowing that he responds, that he cares. One of the passages of scripture that that I will hang my hat on in any conflict is that I can cast my anxiety onto God because he cares for me. I remember the first time I read that passage of scripture, Peter wrote it, and as I read it, I just remember thinking, Wow, what an amazing thought that the result of someone caring for you is being able to endure all of your baggage and garbage. That I can take my fears and all the things that make me feel inferior and all the things that fuel the fires in me to try to bark louder and look bigger because really and truly I'm scared out of my mind. That I can take all of that insecurity and all of that inferiority and I can offer it to God and it will be offered up to one whom it's safe to give it to. Who won't use it against me, but rather he'll take it and he'll care for me. When we deal with conflict, our thoughts shouldn't be, how can I win this? But our thought should be, God, what's right? 
What's right in this matter? I mean, if it costs me, if it, if it costs me, it costs me. If I have to, to humble myself, I will humble myself. But rather than simply try to be the big dog and come out on top in all of this, just show me what's right. Give me all of the wisdom and all of the direction to put Jesus at the center of this matter. And let's let Jesus bring the promised solution of peace because he's the Prince of Peace. I want to pray and I want to ask God to do a work in our hearts and our minds that we can handle conflict as Jesus teaches us and shows us to handle conflict. And I want to trust and believe that those results will be so phenomenal that they'll be evangelistic. That when the world sees how we handle these challenges that will come, they'll be so moved by the results, so in awe, of the results of that atmosphere being altered and altered in the right direction, that it'll be evangelistic, an opportunity and a source to lead people to Jesus. There where you stand, I want to pray. You're welcome to be in agreement or, or simply a state of receiving. Father, we thank you for your word. We know and we understand that conflict will come we want to have our minds renewed in how we address and how we deal with those matters. We want all of the learned behaviors that would be rooted in carnality and selfishness and self-preservation, we want those things to be purged from our life. That we would not be those who would simply thunder louder and louder. But let us be like Jesus. Let us follow His example. Let us be aware of all of the wonder and the power that you've imparted into our lives by the Holy Ghost. That we carry the power of peace. That we serve the Prince of Peace. And that we have been ordained and anointed to impart peace into every conflict that we would encounter. And let us sow the seeds of righteousness, that we would be a people of peace, that we would be those that make peace, and let the seeds that we would sow into conflict produce what is right. We repent of desiring to win, and we commit to pursuing what's right. Let Jesus prevail. Let a renewal take place. Let it be in our hearts. Let it be in our minds. Let it be revealed and reflected in our actions and in our words and in our attitudes. And let us walk in our calling as your children, peacemakers. We bless your name and we thank you in the mighty name of Jesus. And all the saints declared, amen. amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Champions Church. We invite you to join us this Sunday for our celebration worship service. For more information, please visit us at champschurch.com.